Hello, all. Hello again. Welcome uh, back to the Womance Public Access Read-Along of Jane Eyre with your friends, Morgan and Isabeau. I'm Morgan. I read the odd chapters. I'm Isabeau, and I read your even chapters. And Isabeau, last week, or many weeks ago, (laughs) depending on your experience of time, uh, which is a you, construct I think we should do away with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Last week, in a way, you read the evenly numbered chapter, chapter 26. What happened in chapter 26? Well, Morgan, we had a wedding interrupted. We arrived at the church. It was just Rochester. Uh pushing, pulling Jane along speedily, and then right as the preacher asked, does anyone have any uh, objections, our old friend Dick, Dickie showed up with the objection that Mr. Rochester was gasp, already married. Then we went in and we met Bertha Mason. Dickie's sister. Dickie's sister. Rochester's Wife. Who has been in a locked closet with Jane Poole uh, for the last several years. Uh, according to Rochester, she was mad when he put her there. But, you know, in our interpretation, clearly the room and her space and everything else is not helping that situation at all. And then Jane went downstairs and just like sat on her bed, didn't even cry. That's right. She's just kind of been sitting there uh, in shock, one might assume. And that's where... We pick up in chapter 27. Sometime in the afternoon, I raised my head, and looking round and seeing the westering sun gilding the sign of its decline on the wall, I asked, what am I to do? But the answer my mind gave, leave Thornfield at once, was so prompt, so dread, that I stopped my ears. I said I could not bear such words now. That I am not Edward Rochester's bride is the least part of my woe, I alleged. (laughs) That I have wakened out of most glorious dreams and found them all void and vain is a horror I could bear and master. But that I must leave him decidedly, instantly, entirely, is intolerable. I cannot do it. But then, a force within me averred, and that I could do it, and foretold that I should do it. I wrestled with my own resolution. I wanted to be weak that I might avoid the awful passage of further suffering I saw laid out for me. And conscience, turned tyrant, held passion by the throat, told her tauntingly she had yet but dipped her dainty foot in the slow and swore that with the arm of iron he would thrust her down to unsounded depths of agony. Let me be torn away then, I cried. Let another help me. No, you shall tear yourself away. None shall help you. You shall yourself pluck out your right eye, yourself cut off your right hand. Your heart shall be the victim, and you the priest to transfix it. I rose up suddenly, terror-stricken at the solitude which so ruthless a judge haunted, at the silence which so awful a voice filled. My head swam and I stood erect. I perceived that I was sickening from excitement and inanition. Neither meat nor drink had passed my lips that day, for I had taken no breakfast. 
and with a strange pang, I now reflected that, long as I had been shut up here, no message had been sent to ask how I was, or to invite me to come down. Not even little Adele had tapped at the door. Not even Mrs. Fairfax had sought me. Friends always forget those whom fortune forsakes, I murmured as I undrew the bolt and passed out. I stumbled over an obstacle. My head was still dizzy. My sight was dim and my limbs were feeble. I could not soon recover myself. I fell, but not to the ground. An outstretched arm caught me. I looked up. I was supported by Mr. Rochester, who sat in a chair across my chamber threshold. You come out at last, he said. Well, I've been waiting for you long and listening, yet non- not one movement have I heard, nor one sob. Five minutes more of that death-like hush, and I should have forced the lock like a burglar. So you shun me? You shut yourself up and grieve alone? I would rather you had come and abraded me with vehemence. You are passionate. I expected a scene of some kind. I was prepared for the hot rain of tears, only I wanted them to be shed on my breast. Not a senseless floor has received them, nor or your drenched handkerchief. But I err. You have not wept at all. I see a white cheek and a faded eye, but no trace of tears. I suppose then your heart has been weeping blood? <laughs> yes, Mr. Rochester, it has. So gosh. Hello, gosh. <laughs> well, Jane, not a word of reproach, nothing bitter, nothing poignant, nothing to cut a feeling or sting a passion. You sit quietly where I have placed you and regard me with a weary, passive look. Jane, I never meant to wound you thus. I want to take a moment. Like, yes, let's. He's narrating what he's seeing, and it's so annoying. Yes. And I'm glad we don't really do this in books anymore because it's definitely, I think, a bygone utility using dialogue this way. I think it's that, but I also think it speaks to Mr. Rochester's self-centeredness that he is narrating the only part of Jane that he can currently access because he can't access her interior. And so he's just like cataloging features and getting upset about it and reading too much into it. Like this is very much a Rochester move. Your heart must be weeping blood. (laughs) Yeah, like, what a thing to say, guy. She's been in there like you don't know what. Well, Jane, not a word of reproach, nothing bitter, nothing poignant, nothing to cut a feeling or sting a passion. You sit quietly where I've placed you and regard me with a weary, passive look. Jane, I never meant to wound you thus. If the man who had just one little ewe lamb that was dear to him as a daughter, um, that was ate of his bread and drank of his cup and lay in his bosom, had by some mistake slaughtered it at the shambles. He would not have rued his bloody blunder more than I now rue mine. Will you ever forgive me? Reader, I forgave him at the moment and on the spot. There was such deep remorse in his eye, such true pity in his tone, such manly energy in his manner, and besides... There was such unchanged love in his whole look and mien, and I forgave him all, yet not in words, not outwardly, only at my heart's core. This feels very telling, you know, for any of our listeners who might be in high school and about to approach that English class lesson of, like, where is the narrator situated in the story? Like, this is clearly hedging in a past tense, right? Like... That's how it feels to me. Like, I find it hard to believe that Jane truly 
conscientiously felt forgiveness in this moment. But I think for like what's to come, she has to start forgiving Rochester now. I also think this is signaling that project of like um, Christian benevolence. Like this is a very Mm. particular kind of Christianity that Bronte's writing to and through. Like the suffering kind that's also incredibly quick to forgive. And this feels like a look at that. Which is interesting because that kind of behavior is much more in line with – is much more – was essentially – positioned as like oppositional to Jane mm-hmm. through her uh friend Helen Burns. Helen. Helen Burns, right? Helen Burns is the one who does this kind of selfless forgiving. Absolutely. And Jane is conscientious that that is not in her nature. And yet here we see her. Now, are we supposed to take that as like for the right person, we're the right person? Or are we supposed to take it as like this is a little disingenuine on Jane's part? I think that's a really good question. I was seeing it more as like the reclamation, like Helen Burns is the saint and the pedestal that Jane has been using as a measuring stick of her own failures in terms of Christian charity. Mm. And so like this Mm -hmm. is the moment where she finally like takes up that chalice, as it were. Um, Mm. But, you know, I'm willing to entertain the idea that this is disingenuous and like this is obviously because it's written in the past tense, this is Jane rewriting a historic moment for herself. Yeah. We can take it any way we want. I love old books. You know I am a scoundrel, Jane. Ere long, he inquired wistfully, <laughs> wondering, I suppose, at my continued silence and tameness, the result rather of weakness than of will. Yes, sir. Then tell me so roundly and sharply, don't spare me. I cannot. I am tired and sick. I want some water. He heaved a sort of shuddering sigh and, taking me into his arms, carried me downstairs. At first I did not know to what room he had borne me. All was cloudy to my glazed sight. Presently I felt the reviving warmth of a fire, for, summer as it was, I had become icy cold in my chamber. He put wine to my lips. I tasted it and revived, and then I ate something he offered me and was soon myself. I was in the library, sitting in his chair. He was quite near. If I could go out of life now without too sharp a pang, it would be well for me, I thought. Then I should not have to make the effort of cracking my heartstrings and rending them from Mr. Rochester's. I must leave him, it appears. I do not want to leave him. I cannot leave him. How are you now, Jane? Much better, sir. I shall be well soon. Taste the wine again, Jane. I obeyed him. Then he put the glass on the table, stood before me, and looked at me attentively. Suddenly he turned away, with an inarticulate exclamation, full of passionate emotion of some kind. Would you give us an example of an inarticulate exclamation full of passionate emotion of some kind? (gasps) Perfect. He walked fast out of the room and came back. He stooped toward me as if to kiss me, but I remembered caresses were now forbidden. I turned my face away and put his aside. I think it's important to, like, if she is both turning hers away and putting his aside, I'm picturing her, like, pushing his face as well as turning her face away, which is, like, the meanest way to do this and kind of supports the argument that, like, this is a (laughs) – that's rewriting history saying she forgave him in an instant because you could just turn your head away, put up your shoulder. You don't have to (laughs) smush his face. His big old baggin. 
What? How is this? He exclaimed hastily. Oh, I know. You won't kiss the husband of Bertha Mason? You consider my arms filled and my embraces appropriated? At any rate, there is neither room nor claim for me, sir. <laughs> yeah, she forgave yeah, him. Absolutely. <laughs> She's oozing forgiveness. <laughs> Why, Jane, I will spare you the trouble of much talking, per usual. <laughs> I will answer for you, typical, because I have a wife already, he would reply. I guess rightly, yes. If you think so, you must have a strange opinion of me. You must regard me as a plotting profligate, a base and low rake who has been stimulate who has been simulating disinterested love in order to draw you into a snare deliberately laid and strip you of honor and rob you of self-respect. What do you say to that? I see you can say nothing. In the first place, you are faint, still, and have enough to do to draw your breath. In the second place, you cannot yet accustom yourself to abuse and revile me. And besides, the floodgate of tears are open, and they would rush out if you spoke much. And you have no desire to expostulate, to abrade, to make a scene. You are thinking how to act. Talking, you consider, is of no use. I know you. I am on my guard. <laughs> I know you. You're very tired. So you're not going to talk. Well, guess what? I know that about you. Don't worry. I'll talk enough for the both of us. One time my brother broke up with a woman and she came to his bar and he was like putting out like garnishes or something and he was putting out onions and she was like, you love onions. I know that about you. I was like, okay. <laughs> Thank you for that information. This feels like a similar, like, it does seem like it is at that that same energy level. I mean, his energy level is real high. I think this is more than like, you know, I know that you like onions. I think this is like, if I could have access to your soul, I would consume it. I think that's what she was saying about the onion thing. <laughs> I think I think like I, yeah, his energy is super high. Like he's completely unselfconscious in this moment, like desperately cloying. Mm-hmm. But I also think like that's not that different. <laughs> it's just he has better ammo mm. than a food preference, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Fair. And I think we all do this. Like I'm really feeling for this rat bastard right now. I am too, and I think that's one of the things that's so incredible about this book because this is also like such an object lesson in how to apologize badly. Right? Like he literally <laughs> still hasn't said the words I'm sorry, Jane, and he's just like cataloging her features, he's telling her how she feels, he's telling her how bad he is. Like this is all about Rochester. None of this is actually about Jane and like no. any kind of reparative move on his part. Like this is such a bad apology. <laughs> also relatable. Sir, I do not wish to act against you, I said, and my unsteady voice warned me to curtail my sentence. Not in your sense of the word, but in mine. You are scheming to destroy me. You have as good as said I am a married man. As a married man, you will shun me. Keep out of my way. Just now you have refused to kiss me. You intend to make yourself a complete stranger to me, to live under this roof only as Adele's governess. If ever I say a friendly word to you, if ever a friendly feeling inclines you again to me, you will say, that man had nearly made me his mistress. I must be ice and rock to him, and ice and rock you will accordingly become. I cleared my voice and studied to reply. 
All is changed about me, sir. I must change, too. There is no doubt of that, and, to avoid fluctuations of feeling and continual combats with recollections and associations, there is only one way. Adele must have a new governess, sir. Oh, Adele will go to school. I have settled that already. Nor do I mean to torment you with the hideous association and recollections of Thornfield Hall, this accursed place, this tent of Aachen, this insolent offering the ghostliness of living death to the light of an open sky, this narrow stone hell with its one real friend, fiend, worse than a legion of such as we imagine. Jane, you shall not stay here, nor will I. I was wrong to ever bring you to Thornfield Hall, knowing as I did how it was haunted. I charged them to conceal from you before I ever saw you all knowledge of the curse of the place, merely because I feared Adele would not, never would have a governess to stay if she knew with what inmates she was housed, and my plans would not permit me to remove the maniac elsewhere. Though I possess an old house, Ferndean Manor, even more retired and hidden than this, where I could have lodged her safely enough, had not a scruple about the unhealthiness of the situation in the heart of a wood, made my conscience recoil from the arrangement. Probably the, those damp walls would have soon eased me of, of her charge, but to each villain his own vice, and mine is not a tendency to indirect assassination, even of what I most hate. Concealing the madwoman's neighborhood from you, however, was something like covering a child with a cloak and laying it down near an upas tree. I will be hearing no notes on how to pronounce that. It's an upas. That demon's vicinage is poisoned and always was. But I'll shut up Thornfield Hall. I'll nail up the front door and board the lower windows. I'll give Mrs. Poole 200 a year to live here with my wife as you term that fearful hag. It is in italics. He really does do the fugitive. Yes. When my wife... Okay, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. As you term that fearful hag. Grace will do much for money, and she shall have her son, the keeper at Grimsby Retreat, to bear her company and be at hand to give her aid in the paroxysms when my wife is prompted by her familiar to burn people in their beds at night, to stab them, to bite their flesh... From their bones and so Hold on. on. Sir. <laughs> Hold on. Like, I'd like just to make a note about here, Miss Grace Poole, uh, who I'll give 200 a year to and live with my wife because she likes money. She will do much for money. Like, lots of people will do much for money. Like, this aspersion about Grace Poole's character, the only person that you're charging is company for... Bertha Mason? Like, fuck you. Why are you saying that about Grace Poole? And let's just talk about this. Like, Jane is recounting this to us over some drinks. And, you know, we're her friends. Mm -hmm. And I think it sounds to me like he is being utterly self-pitying. Yes. And he's trying to cast everyone as a villain against him. Yes. Right? And, like, trying to finagle whatever... uh, detail he can that makes him look like a good person right grace pool who'll do much for money like grace pool you know the greedy lady you probably think she's so great because she's helping my wife you know like but she actually is worse than me because she'll do a lot for money and i didn't put my wife in a damp house and kill her which i could have 
But I didn't. I could have given... I know, like, I could have given her Ferndean Manor. It doesn't even occur to him that he's like, oh, there's, like, black mold. Maybe I should, like, clean up the house and then she can live in it and not die of the damp. Yeah, he's, yeah, exactly. Like, he's doing that thing that men do where they're like, like, I could have uh, physically hurt someone, but I didn't. I just punched the drywall. And that's what makes me a good person. Yeah. He does point out critically, this was a conversation we had a while ago, and this does happen recently, so I just want to put a pin in it. He does say um, that he charged everyone with keeping the secret, mm-hmm. um, which implies that Mrs. Fairfax knew. Mrs. Fairfax knew, but also the other housekeepers, the other maids and things like that. Yeah, and just Jane no was one- the only one who didn't know. She was the monkey in the middle, and yeah. everyone was tossing the information about Bertha Mason, watching this whole love story unfold, yep. and nobody said anything. And that really speaks to the fact that Jane is not of the servant class. Right. She's also not of Mr. Rochester's class, and I think that's one of the things that's going to go on to create this, like, uh, huge, like, why the gothic, a signature of the gothic is that the main character is a governess because mm-hmm. it is so it is uh, utterly isolated, right? It's isolation on isolation. It's a hat on a hat, some would say. Mm-hmm. Putting you in a spooky old house and and you'd get you no friends, a, no friends at all, except with a guy who wants to touch you. It is the perfect situation to gaslight somebody because you can't verify your own experiences. Everyone has to do it or they'll get fired. Yeah. Sir, I interrupted him. You are an inexorable for that unfortunate lady. You speak of her with hate, with vindictive antipathy. It is cruel. She cannot help being mad. Jane, my little darling, so I will call you for so you are. You don't know what you are talking about. You misjudge me again. It is not because she is mad I hate her. If you were mad, do you think I would hate you? I do indeed, sir. Smart, Jane. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Then you are mistaken, and you know nothing about me, and nothing about the sort of love of which I am capable. Every atom of your flesh is dear to me as my own. In pain and sickness, it would still be dear. Your mind is my treasure. And if it were broken, it would be my treasure still. If you raved, my arms should confine you and not a straight waistcoat. Your grasp, even in fury, would have a charm for me. If you flew at me as wildly as that woman did this morning, I should receive you in an embrace at least as fond as it would be restrictive. (laughs) I should not shrink from you with disgust as I did from her. In your quiet moments, you should have no watcher and no nurse but me, and I could hang over you with untiring tenderness, though you gave me no smile in return, and never weary of gazing into your eyes, though they had no longer a ray of recognition for me. But why do I follow that train of ideas? I was talking of removing you from Thornfield. All you know is prepared for prompt departure. Tomorrow you shall go. I only ask you to endure one more night under this roof, Jane, and then farewell to its miseries and terrors forever. I have a place to repair, to which I will secure sanctuary from hateful reminiscences, from unwelcome intrusion, even from falsehood and slander. 
And take Adele with you, sir, I interrupted. She will be a companion for you. What do you mean, Jane? I told you I would send Adele to school. And what do I want with a child for a companion? And not my own child, a French dancer's bastard. Oh, God. Why do you importune me about her? I say, why do you assign Adele to me for a companion? You spoke of a retirement, sir. And retirement and solitude are dull. Too dull for you. Solitude! Solitude! He reiterated with irritation. I see I must come to an explanation. We're gonna be fucking that whole time, Jane. Like wild animal stuff. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, we don't want Adele there for that. What are you talking about? Solitude! Who's talking about solitude? No one said that, Jane. I'm talking about slapping noises. <laughs> screaming noises. He's out of his mind. He didn't actually say that. That wasn't a direct quote from the It's 100% book. what he meant. Don't include it in your book. Don't include it in your book report. I see I must come to an explanation. I don't know what sphinx-like expression is forming in your countenance. You <laughs> are to share my solitude. Do you understand? God, he's being such a prick. I yeah, exactly. He is. I shook my head. It required a degree of courage, excited as he was becoming, even to risk that mute sign of dissent. He had been walking fast about the room, and he stopped as if suddenly rooted to one spot. He looked at me long and hard. I turned my eyes from him, fixed them on the fire, and tried to assume and maintain a quiet, collected aspect. Now for the hitch in Jane's character, he said at last, speaking more calmly than, from his look, I had expected him to speak. The reel of silk has run smoothly enough so far, but I always knew there would come a knot and a puzzle. Here it is. Now for vexation and exasperation and endless trouble. By God, I long to exert a fraction of Samson's strength and break that entanglement like toe. T-O-W. He recommenced his walk, but soon again he stopped, and this time just before me. Jane, will you hear reason? He stopped and approached his lips to my ear. Because if you won't, I'll try violence. His voice was hoarse, his look that of a man who is just about to burst an insufferable bond and plunge headlong into wild license. I saw that in another moment, and with one impetus of frenzy more, I should be able to do nothing with him. The present, the passing second of time, was all I had in which to control and restrain him. A movement of repulsion, flight, fear, would have sealed my doom and his. But I was not afraid, not in the least. I felt an inward power, a sense of influence which supported me. The crisis was perilous, but not without its charm, such as the Indian perhaps feels when he slips over the rapid in his canoe. I took hold of his clenched hand, loosened the contorted fingers, and said to him soothingly, Sit down. I'll talk to you as long as you like and hear all you have to say, whether reasonable or unreasonable. He sat down. But he did not leave to speak directly. I had been struggling with tears for some time. I had taken great pains to repress them because I knew he would not like to see me weep. Now, however, I considered it well to let them flow as freely and as long as they liked. If the flood annoyed him, so much the better. So I gave way and cried heartily. Soon I heard him earnestly entreating me to be composed, and said I could not while he was in such a passion. 
But I'm not angry, Jane. I only love you too well. And you had steeled your little pale face with such a resolute frozen look, I could not endure it. Hush now and wipe your eyes. His softened voice announced that he was subdued. So I, in my turn, became calm. Now he made an effort to rest his head on my shoulder. But I would not permit it. Then he would draw me to him. No. Jane, Jane, he said in an accent of bitter sadness. It thrilled along every nerve I had. You don't love me, then. It was only my station and the rank of my wife that you valued. Now that you think me disqualified to become your husband, you recoil from my touch as if I were some toad or ape. These words cut me. Yet what could I do or say? I ought, probably, to have done or said nothing. But I was so tortured by a sense of remorse and thus hurting his feelings, I could not control the wish to drop balm where I had wounded. I do love you, I said, more than ever. But I must not show or indulge that feeling, and this is the last time I must express it. The last time, Jane? What? Do you think you can live with me, and see me daily, and yet if you still love me, be always cold and distant? No, sir, that I am certain I could not and therefore I see there is but one way. But you will be furious if I mention it. Oh, mention it. If I storm, you have the art of weeping. Mr. Rochester, I must leave you. For how long, Jane? For a few minutes while you smooth your hair, which is somewhat disheveled, and bathe your face, which looks feverish? I must leave Adele and Thornfield. I must part with you for my whole life. I must begin a new existence among strange faces and strange scenes. Of course. I told you you should. I pass over the madness about parting from me. You mean you must become a part of me. <laughs> As to the new existence, it is all right. You shall be yet my wife. I am not married. You shall be Mrs. Ma Rochester, both virtually and nominally. I shall keep only you so long as you and I live. You shall go to a place I have in the south of France, a white-walled villa on the shores of the Mediterranean. There you shall live a happy and guarded and most innocent life. Never fear that I wish to lure you into error, to make you my mistress. Why do you shake your head, Jane? You must be reasonable. Or in truth, I shall again become frantic. His voice and hand quivered. His large nostrils dilated. His eye blazed. Still, I dared to speak. Sir, your wife is living. That is a fact acknowledged this morning by yourself. If I lived with you as you desire, I should then be your mistress. To say otherwise is sophistical, is false. Jane, I am not a gentle-tempered man. You forget that. I am not long-enduring. I am not cool and dispassionate. Out of pity to me and yourself, put your finger on my pulse. Feel how it throbs and beware. His, he bared his wrist and offered it to me. The blood was forsaking his cheek and lips. They were growing livid. I was distressed on all hands. To agitate him thus deeply, by a resistance he so abhorred, was cruel. To yield was out of the question. I did what human beings do instinctively when they are driven to utter extremity, looked for aid to one higher than me. The words, God help me, burst involuntarily from my lips. 
I'm a fool, cried Mr. Rochester suddenly. I keep telling her I am not married and do not explain to her why. I forget she knows nothing of the character of that woman or of the circumstances attending my infernal union with her. Oh, I am certain Jane will agree with me in opinion when she knows all that I know. Just put your hand in mine, Janet, that I may have the evidence of touch as well as sight to prove you are near me. And I will, in a few words, show you the real state of the case. Can you listen to me? Yes, sir, for hours, if you will. I ask only minutes, Jane. Did you ever hear or know that I was not the eldest son of my house, that I had once a brother older than I? I remember Mrs. Fairfax told me so once. And did you ever hear that my father was an avaricious, grasping man? I have understood something to that effect. Well, Jane... Being so, it was his resolution to keep the property together. He could not bear the idea of dividing his estate and leaving me a fair portion. All, he resolved, should go to my brother Russell. I have Roland. Are you serious? Yeah. That's so weird. I have, I should go to my brother Roland. I cannot understand these, like, very weird choices. We have different translations. (laughs) Of the same language. Yet as little could he endure that a son of his should be a poor man, I must be provided for by a wealthy marriage. He sought me a partner betimes, Mr. Mason, a West Indian planter and merchant. West India. (laughs) A West India planter and merchant. Was his old acquaintance. He was certain his possessions were real and vast. He made inquiries, Mr. Mason. He found he had a son and daughter, and he learned from him that he could and would give the latter a fortune of 30,000 pounds. That sufficed. When I left college, I was sent out to Jamaica to espouse a bride already courted for me. My father said nothing about her money, but he told me Miss Mason was the boast of Spanish town for her beauty, and this was no lie. I found her a fine woman, in the style of Blanche Ingram, tall, dark, and majestic. Her family wished to secure me because I was of a good race, and so did she. My book wants to note that in this context, race means breeding or ancestry, but I would like them to show their work. I agree. I actually don't have that notation in mind. It just lets that one stand. They showed her to me in parties, splendidly dressed. I seldom saw her alone and had very little private conversation with her. She flattered me and lavishly displayed for my pleasure her charms and accomplishments. All the men in her circle seemed to admire her and envy me. I was dazzled stimulated my senses were excited and being ignorant raw and inexperienced i thought i loved her there is no folly so besotted that the idiotic rivalries of society the prurience the rashness the blindness of youth will not hurry a man to its commission her relatives encouraged me competitors piqued me she allured me a marriage was achieved almost before i knew where i was Oh, I have no respect for myself when I think of that act. An agony of inward contempt masters me. I never loved, I never esteemed, I did not even know her. I was not sure of the existence of one virtue in her nature. I had marked neither mind nor manners, and I married her. Gross, groveling, mole-eyed blockhead that I was. With less sin I might have. But let me remember to whom I am speaking. With less sin I might have, then he cuts himself off 
but I must remember to who I'm speaking. Probably because he was like very lustful for her. A hundred percent. He wanted to bang her and he also wants to bang Jane. Also, we found out in this series of confessions that he has a house in the French Mediterranean. Why couldn't he install uh, Bertha and Grace Poole there? Yeah, there's there's going to be like a lot of holes poked in his little narrative about what he has to do. My bride's mother I'd never seen. I understood she was mad and shut up in a lunatic asylum. There was a younger brother too, a complete dumb idiot. The elder one, whom you have seen, and whom I cannot hate while I abhor all his kindred, because he has some grains of affection in his feeble mind, shown in the continued interest he takes in his wretched sister, and also in a dog-like attachment he once bore oh, me, dick. will probably be in the same state one day. My father and my brother, Russell, knew all this, but they... Roland? Yep. But they thought only of the 30,000 pounds and joined in the plot again against me (sighs) these were vile discoveries but except for the treachery of concealment i should have made them no subject of reproach to my wife even when i found her nature wholly alien to mine her taste obnoxious to me her cast of mind common low narrow and singularly incapable of being led to anything higher expanded to anything larger When I found that I could not pass a single evening, nor even a single hour of the day with her in comfort, that kindly conversation could not be sustained between us, because whatever topic I started immediately received from her a turn at once coarse and trite, perverse and imbecile. When I perceived that I should never have quiet have a quiet or settled household because no servant could bear the continued outbreaks of her violent and unreasonable temper or the vexations of her absurd, contradictory, exacting orders. Even then I restrained myself. I eschewed upbraiding. (laughs) I curtailed remonstrance. I tried to devour my repentance and disgust in secret. I repressed the deep antipathy I felt. Jane! She's never even seen Pulp Fiction or heard of Tame Impala. She's never even read the Odyssey or any of the classics. Jane, I will not trouble you with abominable details. (laughs) Now? Now? Now you're not going to trouble me with abominable details? A little late for that guy. Some strong words shall express what I have to say. I lived with that woman upstairs for four years, and before that time she had tried me, indeed. Her character ripened and developed with frightful rapidity. Her vices sprung up fast and rank. They were so strong only cruelty could check them, and I would not use cruelty. What a pygmy intellect she had, and what giant propensities. How fearful were the curses those propensities entailed on me. Bertha Mason, the true daughter of an infamous mother, dragged me through all the hideous and degrading agonies which must attend a man bound to a wife at once intemperate and unchaste. Here, intemperate could refer to overly passionate, violent, or specifically to excessive use of alcohol. I don't think that's what it is. I don't think that's what it is. Mine says, Combs' list of propensities includes emativeness, combativeness, destructiveness, secretiveness, and acquisitiveness, as well as more neutral qualities such as concentrativeness. What it means here is likely the unchaste part. Principles that must be reconciled by some other means. My brother in the interval was dead. (laughs) (laughs) 
I have this crazy horny wife who wants to do all of this weird stuff, but not talk to me about the books I like. By the way, my brother's dead this whole time. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, he talks about himself as raw and, like, untried and, like, naive. And that's how this, like, devilish thing works on him. But Bertha Mason is also young and suddenly has access to being in charge of her own household for the very first time. And so, like, he's just such an asshole. And he just keeps digging himself deeper and deeper in this chapter. And he continues now. (laughs) And at the end of the four years, my father had died too. I was rich enough now, yet poor to hideous in- indigence. A nature that the most gross, impure, depraved I ever saw was associated with mine and called by the law and by society a part of me. And I could not rid myself of it by any legal proceedings, for the doctors now discovered that my wife was mad. Her excesses had prematurely developed the germs of insanity, Jane. You don't like my narrative. You look almost sick. Shall I defer the rest to another day? Yeah, she had so much sex, she went crazy, Jane. Also, you look tired, and I want you to get all of it, so we can take this up again when you're better rested. (laughs) No, sir, finish it now. I pity you. I do earnestly pity you. Pity, Jane, from some people's noxious and insulting sort of tribute, which one is justified in hurling back in the teeth of those who offer it. But that is a sort of pity native to callous, selfish hearts. It is a hybrid, egotistical pain at hearing of woes, crossed with ignorant contempt for those who have endured them. But that is not your pity, Jane. It is not the feeling of which your whole face is full at this moment, with which your eyes are now overflowing, with which your heart is heaving, with which your hand is trembling in mine. Your pity, my darling, is the suffering mother of love. Oh, God, that's dark. Its anguish is the very natal pang of the divine passion. Wow. I accept it, Jane. Let the daughter have free advent. My arms await to receive her. Now, sir, proceed. What did you do when you found out she was mad? Jane, I approach the verge of despair, a remnant of self-respect, was all that intervened between me and the gulf. In the eyes of the world, I was doubtless covered with grimy dishonor, but I resolved to be clean in my own sight, and to the last, I repudiated the contamination of her crimes and wrenched myself from connection with her mental defects. Still, society associated my name and person with hers. I yet saw her and heard her daily. Something of her breath, faw, mixed with the air I breathed. And besides, I remembered I had once been her husband. That recollection was then, and it is now, inexpressively odious to me. Moreover, I knew that while she lived, I could never be the husband of another and better wife. And though five years my senior, by the way, her family and my father had lied to me even in the particular of her age, she was likely to live as long as I, being as robust in frame as she was infirm in mind. Thus, at the age of 26, I was hopeless. And she was 31. And she was 31. And very strong. (laughs) And sturdy. One night, I had been awakened by her yells. Since the medical men had pronounced her mad, she had, of course, been shut up. (laughs) It was a fiery West Indian night, one of the 
description that frequently precede the hurricanes of those climates. Being unable to sleep in bed, I got up and opened the window. The air was like sulfur stream. I could find no refreshment anywhere. Mosquitoes came buzzing in and hummed sullenly around the room. The sea which I could hear from thence rumbled dull like an earthquake. Black clouds were casting up over it. The moon was setting in the waves, broad and red, like a hot cannonball. <laughs> she threw her last bloody glance over a world quivering with the ferment of tempest. I was physically influenced by the atmosphere and scene, and my eyes were filled with the curses the maniac still shrieked out, wherein she momentarily mingled my name with such tone of demon hate, with such language. No professed harlot ever had a fouler vocabulary than she. Even two rooms off, I heard every word, the thin partitions of the West India house opposing, but slight obstruction of her wolfish cries." I think it's telling when he chooses to say West Indian as the adjective versus West India as the adjective. I agree. I also think the moments where he refers to her as an animal versus moments where he makes her otherworldly. Yeah. I don't think those are accidents. No. This life, said I at last, is hell. This is the air. Those are the sounds of the bottomless pit. I have a right to deliver myself from it if I can. The sufferings of this mortal state will leave me with the heavy flesh that now cumbers my soul. Of the fanatic's burning eternity, I have no fear. There is not a future state worse than this present one. Let me break away and go back home to God. I said this while I knelt down and unlocked a trunk which contained a brace of loaded pistols. I meant to shoot myself. I only entertained the intention for a moment. For not being insane, the crisis of exquisite and unalloyed despair which had originated the wish and design of self-destruction was passed in a second. A wind fresh from Europe blew over the ocean and rushed through the open casement. The storm broke, streamed, thundered, blazed, and the air grew pure with this wind fresh from Europe. The old world farting in your direction. yeah, purifying the West India, West Indian wind. I then framed and fixed a resolution. While I walked under the dripping orange trees of my wet garden and among its drenched pomegranates and pineapples, and while the refulgent dawn of the tropics kindled round me, I reasoned thus, Jane, and now listen, for it was true wisdom that consoled me in that hour and showed me the right path to follow. The sweet wind from Europe was still whispering in the refreshed leaves, and the Atlantic was thundering in glorious liberty. My heart, dried up and scorched for a long time, swelled to the tone and filled with living blood. My being longed for renewal. My soul thirsted for a pure draft. I saw hope revive, and my regeneration possible. From a flowery arch at the bottom of my garden, I gazed over the sea bluer than the sky. The old world was beyond. Clear prospects opened thus. Go, said Hope, and live again in Europe. There it is not known that a sullied name you bear, nor what a filthy burden is bound to you. You may take the maniac with you to England, confined her with due attendance and precautions at Thornfield. 
very articulate wind, very specific wind, then travel yourself to what climb you will. <laughs> okay. And form what new tie you like. <laughs> the woman who has so abused your long suffering, so sullied your name, so outraged your honor, so blighted your youth is not your wife, nor are you her husband. See that she is cared for as her condition demands, and you have done all that God and humanity require of you. Let her identity or her connection with yourself be buried in oblivion. You are bound to impart them to no living being. Place her in safety and comfort, shelter her degradation with secrecy, and leave her. So you see, Jane, I'm not married because the wind from Europe told me I wasn't married. Also, she wanted to peg me, so she's a harlot, and that's terrible. And so I locked her up in the third story tower with this woman named Grace Poole who will do anything for money. (laughs) It's a very articulate wind, as you said. Very specific. I wish the wind would come and, like, tell me exactly what to do with my life every once in a while. That fresh wind from Europe. Yeah, and Rochester does what anyone would do when... um, a wind from Europe gives you a to-do list, I acted precisely on this suggestion. My father and brother had not made my marriage known to their acquaintance because in the very first letter I wrote to apprise them of the union, having already begun to experience extreme disgust of its consequences and from the family character and constitution seeing a hideous future opening to me, I added an urgent charge to keep it secret. And very soon... The infamous conduct of the wife my father had selected for me was such as to make him blush to own her as his daughter-in-law. Far from desiring to publish the connection, he became as anxious to conceal it as myself. Don't talk to your dad about sex like that, Rochester. (laughs) Roland would never do that. Russell, certainly not. That's what killed his dad. Yeah. To England, then, I conveyed her, a fearful joyage I had with such a monster in the vessel. Here's a question. Why not leave her behind? Great question. Because that's not what the wind told him to Mm, do. You're right. The wind told her to lock her up in shelter and care. Glad was I when at last I got her to Thornfield and saw her safely lodged in that third-story room, of whose secret inner cabinet she was now for ten years made a wild beast's den, a goblin's cell. Jesus. Ten years? I had some trouble in finding an attendant for her. Let's talk, 10 years, let's talk about what a hard time Rochester had finding help. (laughs) You're right. I'm sorry. I I missed the lead there. Well, did you know it was necessary to select one on whom fidelity dependence could be placed for her ravings would would inevitably betray my secret. She's going to mention that we're married. Yeah. And who knows what else. (laughs) What other tipples Mm. she might mention. Besides, she had lucid intervals of days, sometimes weeks, which she filled up with the abuse of me. At last, I hired Grace Poole from the Grimsby Retreat. (laughs) Perhaps you've heard of it. (laughs) She is Surgeon Carter, who dressed Mason's wound that night he was stabbed and worried. See, everything comes together. Uh, are the only two I have ever admitted to my confidence. Oh, I'd like to pause on this again because, like, the text uses the term worried again, where it's, like, the worried of the flesh. Uh, 
Also, like, he just said, like, I had to bring in everyone to my secret. Now he's like, two people knew my secret. Maybe they knew the whole like, of it. Because, like, he had, like, everybody who, everybody knew who Bertha Mason was. Maybe they didn't know the lurid secrets he's so concerned about that he left in Jamaica. Otherwise, he's a liar who lies and doesn't know how to keep his story straight. It's a lot of trouble to go through to keep people from knowing that you like your prostate stimulated. Yeah. Mrs. Fairfax may indeed have suspected something, but she could have gained no precise knowledge as to facts. Grace has, on the whole, proved a whole good keeper. Proved a good keeper, though. Grace, on the whole, has proved a whole good keeper. Um, owing partly to a fault of her own, of which it appears nothing can cure her. Alcoholism. And which is incident to her harassing profession. Her vigilance has been more than once lulled and baffled. The lunatic is both cunning and malignant. She has never failed to take advantage of her guardian's temporary lapses. Once to secrete the knife with which she stabbed her brother, and twice to possess herself of the key of her cell and issue therefrom a night uh, in the nighttime. On the first of these occasions, she perpetrated the attempt to burn me in my bed. On the second, she paid that ghastly visit to you. I think Providence, who watched over you, that she then spent her fury on your wedding apparel, which perhaps brought back vague reminiscences of her own bridal days. But on what might have happened, I cannot endure to reflect. When I think of the thing which flew, flew at my throat this morning, hanging its black and scarlet visage over the nest of my dove, my blood curdles. And what, sir? I asked while he paused. Did you do when you had settled her there? Where did you go? What did I do, Jane? No, that's not what she asked. I transformed myself into a will-o'-the-wisp. <laughs> Where did I go? I pursued wanderings as wild as those of the March Sprite. I sought the continent and went devious through all its lands. My fixed desire was to seek and find a good and intelligent woman who I could love, a contrast to the fury I left at Thornfield. But you could not marry, sir. I had determined and was convinced that I could and ought. It was not my original intention. Yeah, that's why I dated, like, an opera singer. Like, I was definitely going to marry her. Don't, don't think anything else about that. I had moral intentions. She was just a harlot. I will be accepting no follow-up questions, I was a will of the wisp, and I went on a march of the sprite. No further detail necessary. That's what I mean. The fact that, like, <laughs> when he talks about, like, both Jane himself and Bertha Mason, when he makes these comparisons to otherworldly things, like, this idea, I'm a will of the wisp, that feels so whimsical and soft and, like, almost well, it's effeminate. Also, like, very, like, the romance like the romance era idea of like nature as both like powerful and kind like uh, altruistic or whatever right like the divinity of nature yes. itself can be cleansing and the fact that he takes this on so specifically here refers to Bertha as a demon not 10 lines above and constantly refers to Jane as, like, this ethereal presence. It's like he's putting them all out of the mortal plane. He's putting them all out of, like, a normal existence. He's 
hyperbolizing in a way, but he's doing it to each of them. And also, if we like think about this book and like the context that it was written, perhaps also like extricating the conversation from I- specific ideas about like Christian morality and Christian ethic, right? Because his decision, he's walking in his garden full of all these like fresh fruits and like sparkling dew drops and the cool. His wet, he's walking through his wet ass garden and he is like compelled to like not kill himself, but to insist on living, right? In spite of this burden, like that's also a very romantic ideal, right? Like push through. And I wonder if our text isn't problematizing that at this point because he sounds like there are no periods, there are no commas. Right. There are no periods. There are no commas. I think the text is letting him have all of the rope to rhetorically yeah, hang himself out. with. It was not my original intention to deceive, as I have deceived you. I meant to tell my tale plainly and make my proposals openly. And it appeared to me so absolutely rational. That's a fucking felony. <laughs> Yeah, it appeared to me so absolutely rational that I should be considered free to love and be loved. I never doubted some woman might be found willing and able to understand my case and accept me in spite of the curse with which I was burdened. Well, sir. Well, you are inquisitive, Jane. You always make me smile. You open your eyes like an eager bird and make every now and then a restless movement as if answers and speech did not flow fast enough for you. And you wanted to read the tablet of one's heart. But before I go on, tell me what you mean by your well, sir. (laughs) It is a small phrase, very frequent with you, and which may many a time has drawn me on and on through interminable talk. I don't very well know why. (laughs) I mean, what next? How did you proceed? What came of such an event? Precisely. And what do you wish to know now? I told you the thing about the March of the Sprite. And I was going to be up front. I was going to, you know... Find someone who was down for bigamy. <laughs> whether you found anyone you liked, whether you asked her to marry you, and what she said. Oh, he's trying to draw her out to see if she's jealous. I can tell you whether I found anyone I liked and whether I asked her to marry me, but what she said is yet to be recorded in the Book of Fate. Wah, wah. It you, girl. For ten long years, I roved about... <laughs> God, it's so hard not to like him, uh, though. If you have uh, a vulva, be sure to get out a panty liner for this passage. <laughs> for ten long years I roved about, living first in one capital, then another, sometimes in St. Petersburg, oftener in Paris, occasionally in Rome, Naples, and Florence, provided with plenty of money. And the passport of an old name. I could choose my own society. No circles were closed against me. I sought my ideal of a woman among English ladies, French countesses, Italian signoras, and German Grafen. Grafenen. <laughs> I could not find her. Sometimes, for a fleeting moment, I thought I caught a glance, heard a tone, beheld a form which announced the realization of my dream, that I was presently undeceived. You are not to suppose that I desired perfection, either of mind or person. I only wanted a physical ten. I only longed for what suited me, for the antipodes of the Creole, and I longed vainly. Wow. Yep. 
Among them all I found not one whom, had I ever been so free, I, warned as I was of the risks, the horror, the loathings of incongruous unions, would have asked to marry me. And disappointment made me reckless. I tried dissipation, never debauchery. That I hated, and hate. That was my Indian Messalina's attribute. Rooted disgust at it, and her and her restrained me much, even in pleasure. Any enjoyment that bordered on riot seemed to approach me to her and her vices, and I eschewed it. She likes sex. He can't make he can't make love to any other woman without thinking of her. Sounds like he's in love to me, right? And that she enjoys it, and that he can't enjoy it so much without thinking of her. Yeah, a riot of passion. Come on, man. Yikes, dude. Yet I could not live alone. So I tried the companionship of mistresses. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, I'm not going to not do it, right? I'm just going to, like, you know, find someone who looks, like, physically opposite of her and is less good at it. The first I chose was Selene Varens. You know her. Another one of those steps which make a man spurn himself when he recalls them. You already know what she was, what she was, God, and how my liaison with her terminated. She had two successors, an Italian, Giacinta, and a German, Clara, both considered singularly handsome. What was their beauty to me in a few weeks? Giacinta was unprincipled and violent. I tired of her in three months. Clara was honest and quiet, but heavy, mindless, unimpressible. Not one whit to my taste. Not unlike a cow. I was glad to give her a sufficient sum to set her up in a good line of business and so get decently rid of her. Yo, you're so good at getting decently rid of people. But Jane, I see by your face you are not forming a very favorable opinion of me just now. You think me an unfeeling, loose-principled rake, don't you? No, I'm just thinking about how you just offered to put me up in a, like, Mediterranean villa. Patterns. I don't like you so well as I have done sometimes indeed, sir. Did it not to me did it not seem to you in the least wrong to live in that way, first with one mistress and then another? You talk of it as if a mere matter of course. It was with me. I did not like it. I didn't like it. It was a groveling fashion of existence. I should never wish to return to it. Hiring a mistress is the next worst thing to buying a slave. Whoa. Both are often by nature and always by position, inferior. And to live familiarly with inferiors is degrading. I now hate the recollection of the time I passed with Selene, Giacinta, and Clara. Jane is literally your employee. I guess he sees the difference because he pays her and she isn't a slave. Is that the difference he's making? No, he pays these women in a lot of ways. He does, but he compares mistress yeah, hiring a mistress is the next worst thing to buying a slave. Yeah, he does not see Jane in this way, but, like, how could she not see herself this way? Exactly. The nobility of a wage or something. But also, it's, like, only 30 pounds a year. I know. I bet everything he got for Selene, Celine, Giacinta, and Clara, like, the penthouses, the dresses, I bet it all totaled a lot more than 30 pounds a year. He set Clara up with a small business. Whatever she's doing, she now has the income for the rest of her life if she wants it. Oh, Jane. I felt the truth of these words, and I drew from them the certain inference that if I were so far to forget myself and all the teaching that had ever been instilled into me, as under any pretext, 
with any justification, through any temptation, to become the successor, successor of these poor girls, he would one day regard me with the same feeling which now in his mind desecrated their memory. I did not give utterance to this conviction. It was enough to feel it. I impressed it on my heart that it might remain there to serve me as aid in the time of trial. Now, Jane, why don't you say well, sir? I have not done. You are looking grave. You disapprove of me still, I see. But let me come to the point. Last January, rid of all mistresses, in a harsh, bitter frame of mind, the result of a useless, roving, lonely life, corroded with disappointment, sourly disposed against all men, and especially against all womankind, for I began to regard the notion of an intellectual, faithful, loving woman as a mere dream. It's you! <laughs> Recalled by business, I came back to England. On a frosty winter afternoon, I rode in sight of Thornfield Hall, a bored spot. I expected no peace, no pleasure there. On a stile in Hay Lane, I saw a quiet little figure sitting by itself. I passed it as negligently as I did the pollard willow opposite to it. I had no presentiment of what it would be to me, no inward warning that the arbitress of my life, my genius for good and evil, or evil, waited there in humble guise. I did not know it even when, on the occasion of Miss Rur's accident, it came up and gravely offered me help. Childish and slender creature, it seemed as if a linnet had hopped to my foot and proposed to bear me on its tiny wing. I was surly, but the thing would not go. It stood by me with strange perseverance, and looked and spoke with a sort of authority. I must be aided, and by that hand, and aided I was. When once I had pressed the frail shoulder, something new, a fresh sap and sense, stole into my frame. It was well I had learned that this elf must return to me, that it belonged to my house down below, or I could not have felt it pass from under my hand, and seen it vanish behind the dim hedge without singular regret. I heard you come home that night, Jane, though probably you were not aware that I thought of you or watched you. The next day I observed you, myself unseen, for half an hour, while you played with Adele in the gallery. It was a snowy day, I recollect, and you could not go out of doors. I was in my room. The door was ajar. I could both listen and watch. Adele claimed your outward attention for a while, yet I fancied your thoughts were elsewhere. But you were very patient with her, my little Jane. You talked with her and amused her a long time. When at last she left you, you lapsed at once into deep reverie. You betook yourself slowly to, a pace, to pace the gallery. Now and then, in passing a casement, you glanced out at the thick falling snow. You listened to the sobbing wind, and again you paced gently on and dreamed. I think those day visions were not dark. There was a pleasurable illumination in your eye on occa occasionally, a hypochondriac brooding, oh, a soft excitement in your aspect which told of no bitter, bileless, hypochondriac brooding. Your look revealed rather the sweet musings of youth, when its spirit follows on willing wings the flight of hope, up and on to an ideal heaven. The voice of Mrs. Fairfax, speaking to a servant in the hall, wakened you, and how curiously you smiled, too, and at yourself, Janet. 
There was much sense in your smile. It was very shrewd and seemed to make light of your own abstraction. It seemed to say, My fine visions are all very well, but I must not forget they are absolutely unreal. I have a rosy sky and a green flowery Eden in my brain. But without, I am perfectly aware, lies at my feet a rough tract to travel. Downstairs and demanded of Mrs. Rough track to travel, and around me gather black tempests to encounter. You ran down the stairs and demanded of Mrs. Fairfax some occupation, the weekly house accounts to make up, or something of that sort. I think it was. I was vexed with you for getting out of my sight. Impatiently, I waited for the evening when I might summon you to my presence. An unusual to me, a perfectly new character I suspected was yours. I desired to search it deeper and know it better. You entered the room with a look and air at once shy and independent. You were quaintly dressed, much as you are now. I made you talk. Ere long, I found you full of strange contrasts. Your garb and manner were restricted by rule. Your air was often diffident and altogether that of one refined by nature, but absolutely unused to society and a good deal afraid of making herself disadvantageously conspicuous by some solecism or blunder. Yet, when addressed, you lifted a keen, a daring, and a glowing eye to your interlocutor's face. There was penetration and power in each glance you gave. When plied by close questions, you found ready and round answers. Very soon, you seemed to get used to me. I believe you felt the existence of sympathy between you and your grim cross-master Jane, for it was astonishing to see how quickly a certain pleasure, a certain pleasant ease tranquilized your manner. Snarl as I would, you showed no surprise, fear, annoyance, or displeasure at my moroseness. You watched me, and now and then smiled at me with a simple yet sagacious grace I cannot describe. I was at once content and stimulated with what I saw. I liked what I had seen and wished to see more. Yet for a long time I treated you distantly and sought your company rarely. I was an intellectual epicure and wished to prolong the gratification of making this novel and piquant acquaintance. Besides, I was for a while troubled with a haunting fear that if I handled the flower freely, its bloom would fade. The sweet charm of freshness would leave it. I did not then know that it was no transitory blossom, but rather the radiant resemblance of one, cut in an indestructible gem. Moreover, I wished to see whether you would seek me if I shunned you, but you did not. You kept in the schoolroom as still as your own desk and easel. If by chance I met you, you passed me as soon, and with as little token of recognition as was consistent with respect. Your habitual expression in those days changed was a thoughtful look, not despondent, for you were not sickly, but not buoyant, for you had little hope and no actual pleasure. I wondered what you thought of me, or if you ever thought of me. To find this out, I resumed my notice of you. There was something glad in your glance and genial in your manner when you conversed. I saw you had a social heart. It was, a silent, it was the silent schoolroom. It was the tedium of your life that made you mournful. I permitted myself the delight of being kind to you. Kindness stirred emotion soon. Your face became soft in expression, your tones gentle. I liked my name pronounced by your lips in a grateful, happy accent. I used to enjoy a chance meeting with you, Jane. At this time, there was a curious hesitation in your manner. 
You glanced at me with a slight trouble, a hovering doubt. You did not know what my caprice might be, whether I was going to play the master and be stern or the friend and be benignant. Benignant? I was now too fond of you to simulate the first whim, and when I stretched my hand out cordially, such bloom and light and bliss rose to your young, wistful features. I had much ado often to avoid straining you then, and there to my heart. Don't talk any more of those days, sir, I interrupted furtively, dashing away some tears from my eyes. His language was torture for me, for I knew what I must do, and do soon. And all these reminiscences and these revelations of his feelings only made my work more difficult. No, Jane, he returned. What necessity is there to dwell on the past when the present is much surer, the future so much brighter? I shrugged to hear the infatuated assertion. You see now how the case stands, do you not? He continued. After a youth and manhood, passed half in an utterable misery and half in dreary solitude, please, I have for the first time found what I can truly love. I have found you. You are my sympathy, my better self, my good angel. I am bound to you with a strong attachment. I think you good, gifted, lovely. A fervent, a solemn passion is conceived in my heart. It leads to you, draws you to my center and spring of life, wraps my existence about you, and kindling in pure, powerful flame, fuses you and me in one. It was because I felt and knew this that I resolved to marry you. To tell me that I already had a wife is empty mockery. You know now that I had but a hideous demon. I was wrong to attempt to deceive you, but I had feared a stubbornness that exists in your character. I feared early instilled prejudice. I wanted to have you safe before hazarding confidences. This was cowardly. I should have appealed to your nobleness and magnanimity at first, as I do now, Open to you plainly my life of agony, describe to you my hunger and thirst after a higher and worthier existence, shown to you not my resolution, that word is weak, but my resistless bent to love faithfully and well, where I am faithfully and well loved in return. Then I should have asked you to accept my pledge of fidelity and to give me yours, Jane. Give it me now. A pause. Why are you silent, Jane? I was experiencing an ordeal. A hand of fiery iron grasped my vitals. Terrible moment full of struggle, blackness burning. Not a human being that ever lived could wish to be loved better than I was loved. And him who thus loved me, I absolutely worshipped. And I must renounce love and idol. One drear word comprised my intolerable duty. Depart. I like that she's describing him as an idol. Jane, you understand what I want of you? Just this promise. I will be yours, Mr. Rochester. Mr. Rochester, I will not be yours. Good job, Jane. Another long silence. Jane, recommenced he with a gentleness that broke me down with grief and turned me stone-cold with ominous terror, for this still voice was that pant of a lion rising. Jane, do you mean to go one way in the world, 
and to let me go another. I do. Jane, bending toward and embracing me, do you mean it now? I do. And now, softly kissing my forehead and cheek. I do, extricating myself from restraint rapidly and completely. Oh, Jane, this is bitter. This, this is wicked. It would not be wicked to love me. It would to obey you. A wild look raised his brows, crossed his features. He rose, but he forbore yet. I laid my hand on the back of a chair for support. I shook, I feared, but I resolved. One instant, Jane, give me one glance to my horrible life when you are gone. All happiness will be turn, torn away with you. What then is left? For a wife I have but the maniac upstairs. As well might you refer me to some corpse in yonder churchyard? What shall I do, Jane? Where turn from com for a companion and for some hope? Do as I do. Trust in God and yourself. Believe in heaven. Hope to meet again there. Then you will not yield. No. Then you condemn me to live wretched and to die accursed, his voice rose. I advise you to live sinless, and I wish you to die tranquil. Then you snatch love and innocence from me. You fling me back on lust for a passion, vice for an occupation. Mr. Rochester, I no more assign this fate to you than I grasp at it for myself. We were born to strive and endure, you as well as I. Do so. You will forget me as I, before I forget you. You make me a liar by such language. You sully my honor. I declared I could not change. You tell me to my face I shall change soon. And what a distortion in your judgment. What a perversity in your ideas is proved by your conduct. Is it better to drive a fellow creature to despair than to transgress a mere human law? No man being e injured by the breach? For you have neither relatives nor acquaintances whom you need fear to offend by living with me. This was true. And while he spoke, my very conscience and reason turned traitors against me and charged me with crime in resisting him. They spoke almost as loud as feeling, and that clamored wildly. Oh, comply, it said. Think of his misery. Think of his danger. Look at his state when left alone. Remember his headlong nature. Consider the reckless following on despair. Soothe him. Save him. Love him. Tell him you love him and will be his. Who in the world cares for you? Or you who will be injured by what you do? Still indomitable was the reply, I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself. I will keep the law given by God, sanctioned by man. I will hold to the principles received by me when I was sane and not mad as I am now. Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this, when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor. Stringent are they, inviolate they shall be. If at my individual convenience I might break them, what would be their worth? They have a worth, so I have always believed. 
and if I cannot believe it now, it is because I am insane, quite insane, with my veins running fire and my heart beating faster than I can count its throbs. Preconceived opinions, foregone determinations are all I have at this hour to stand by. There, I plant my foot. I did. Mr. Rochester, reading my countenance, saw I had done so. His fury was wrought to the highest. He must yield to it for a moment, whatever followed. He crossed the floor and seized my arm and grasped my waist. He seemed to devour me with his flaming glance, physically. I felt at the moment powerless, as stubble exposed to the draft and glow of a furnace. Mentally, I still possess my soul, and with it the certainty of ultimate safety. The soul for fortunately had an interpreter, often an unconscious, but still a truthful interpreter, in the eye. My eye rose to his, and while I looked in his fierce face, I gave an involuntary sigh. His gripe was painful, but my overtasked strength, and my overtasked strength almost exhausted. Never, said he as he ground his teeth. Never was anything at once so frail and so indomitable. A mere reed she feels in my hand. And he shook me the force of his hold. I could bend her with my finger and thumb. And what good would it do if I bent, if I uptore, if I crushed her? Consider that I, consider the resolute, wild, free thing looking out of it, defying me with more than courage, with a stern triumph. Whatever I do with its cage, I cannot get at it. The savage, beautiful creature. If I tear, if I rend the slight prison, my outrage will only let the captive loose. Conqueror I might be of the house. Conqueror I might be of the house, but the inmate would escape to heaven before I could call myself possessor of its clay-dwelling place. And it is you, spirit, with will and energy and virtue and purity that I want, not alone your brittle frame. Of yourself you could come, with soft flight and nestle against my heart. If you would, seized against your will, you will elude the grasp like an essence, you will vanish ere I inhale your fragrance. Oh, come, Jane, come. As he said this, he released me from his clutch and only looked at me. A look was far worse to resist than the frantic strain. Only an idiot, however, would have succumbed now I had dared and baffled his fury. I must elude his sorrow. I retired to the door. You are going, Jane. I am going, sir. You are leaving me. Yes. You will not come. You will not be my comforter, my rescuer, my deep love, my wild woe, my frantic prayer are all nothing to you. What unutterable pathos was in his voice. Sorry. Sorry, everyone. Sorry, my pathos is only utterable. How hard it was to reiterate firmly. I am going. Jane. Mr. Rochester. Withdraw, then. I consent. But remember, you leave me here in anguish. Go up to your own room. Think over all I have said. And Jane, cast a glance on my sufferings. Think of me. He turned away. He threw himself on his face on the sofa. <laughs> oh, Jane! My hope, my love, my life. 
broken anguish from his lips. Then came a deep, strong sob. I had already gained the door, but reader, I walked back, walked back as determinedly as I had retreated. I knelt down by him. I turned his face from the cushion to me. I kissed his cheek. I smoothed his hair with my hand. God bless you, my dear master, I said. God keep you from harm and wrong, direct you, solace you, reward you for your past kindness to me. Little Jane's love would have been my best reward, he answered. Without it, my heart is broken. But Jane will give me her love. Yes, nobly, generously. Up the blood rushed to his face. Forth flashed the fire from his eyes. Erect he sprung and held his arms out, but I evaded the embrace and at once quitted the room. Farewell was the cry of my heart as I left him. Despair added, farewell forever. I want to talk about this because, I mean, like, this is extremely, like, coercive, abusive behavior. And yes, it's also, like, I, I want to give acknowledgement and credence to the fact that it's also very true and very relatable, this idea of, like, yes, being the cause of such pain, right, is kind of delighting because it means you're also the cause of such like joy such desire and it can be and how it can feel that way but really like Rochester reveals in his like penultimate argument like he's more interested in possessing her and he has a moment where he thinks about killing her so that he can possess her soul but then he's like but her soul would is you know vaporous so it's not like I could actually possess it but whenever he talks about breaking the cage right um the cage being her body yeah i mean it's visceral and it's visceral more than once it's really struck me that line when he said um if i up tore if i crushed her Consider the resolute, wild, free thing looking out of it, defying me with more than courage, with a stern triumph. Whatever I do with its cage, I cannot get at it. The savage, beautiful creature. Right? So the term there, creature, the term there, savage, have been terms used for Bertha Mason, right? My guy has mm-hmm. a type. Yeah, absolutely. And the only thing that's different here is that he's attributing it to, like, beauty and virtue rather than vice and carnality. Yeah, she hasn't turned on him the same way Bertha has. But this book doesn't seem, like, conscious. This particular text doesn't seem that conscious of the fact. Like, or does it? I mean, like, this is the thing, like... Does the book realize that Bertha Mason's rage is entirely directed at Rochester and actually seems to have a project of trying to warn Jane, right? Like, it's a very uh, rich symbolism to tear someone's wedding veil, right? It means don't get married. Like, whatever the reason is, like... (laughs) Yeah, no, it means don't get married. And I think that's so right. And also what struck me when he said that, like, Grace Poole is an alcoholic. And we he's already confessed that Bertha's been there for 10 years and there have been three lapses. All three lapses occurred when Jane arrived. Like, I'm not convinced that this text isn't consciously aware of Rochester's more than villainy. Like, this text gives Rochester, like, a thousand pages to talk about how he's not a villain. But even then... It's not enough to 
like exculpate himself in Jane's eyes and it's not enough for the forgiveness of Bertha Mason. So like this text is actually like quite complicated in terms of like how it's dealing with these three characters. Well, we even talked about the earlier like forgiveness thing. And I actually I'm glad we are reading this because I saw a TikTok recently that read uh the piece of dialogue Rochester just delivered about wanting to like talking about her frailty, her physical frailty. And they said it was the kinkiest part of Jane Eyre. And I was like, that's remarkable given he literally dressed up as a fortune teller and had her kneel in front of him so he could tell her what she looked like. But also like, it's not. Like there's some... Yeah, to say that the kinkiest part of Jane Eyre is the part where Rochester says that he wants to up tour and crush her. What about the part where he talks about the, like, the little ribbon that connects their ribs together? Like, yeah. this book is incredibly corporeal. This book is incredibly kinky. As you said, he dresses as a fortune teller and has her kneel and, like, touches her face all talks over. about how much she wants it <laughs> yeah. in the third person. <laughs> This is a scene of imagined violence on his part, but also not even the first scene in this scene because he almost rapes her. When she says, if I moved or twitched or showed fear or backed away, he would have been on me. And I knew that and I wasn't afraid because I recognized that as power. And I'm like, ooh, buddy, that isn't what that is. (laughs) I think there's something very like asexual like not asexual but I don't think it's I think another reason it's not kinky is that it's not I think he has transcended wanting to just possess her sexually right yes because he's talking about her body is like a cage right he wants her soul yes I think it's a a, a Hegelian dialectic right like he needs her to upend her own humanity, right? To to deny her own, like, psychological soul need to be good and to be right in order to tell him that he is good and that he is right. He needs her to do that. He doesn't need, like, it's not that he needs her to have sex. He needs someone like Jane, someone with an intellect that he respects, allegedly, right? But someone with, like, an intellect, right, because he, he's been looking for a woman with an intellect. He's been looking for someone who he considers good. He's calling her, he's thinking of her as, like, a dove this whole time, you know, a sprite previously. An he's elf. remembering when they first met. Yeah, like, she's some kind of supernatural force, the kind of pure, good, supernatural force. And if that kind of creature would have him and give themselves of him, then he could be at peace, right? Right. But I think the thing that's really important here is that he's not he's not just asking for sex, he's asking for the possession of soul, but they're, like those things are collapsed in this society, right? Like if she goes and lives with him, it's not simply saying that like, I mm. forgive you, it's not simply saying I love you, because she said those things and those aren't enough, right? There's yeah. an action here, and the action here required is like 
a bodily negation of all of her values and herself and this like giving over of physical autonomy sexually and so like this nexus here it's like I agree this isn't about sex like this is the least sexiest part of the book Mm -hmm. but like sex is the highway but what we're driving here and what we're talking about is power what we're talking here about is individuation I wish Jean could go back and tell him like okay I'll marry you I'll be faithful to you but we will never have sex and just see what his reaction would be. <laughs> He's like, solitude, Jane, solitude. No one's talking about solitude, Jane. Who's talking about solitude? Who brought up solitude? <laughs> no, not me. Not me. Not Rocky. <laughs> Why have we not called him Rocky until this moment? I've been calling him Rocky this whole time on Instagram. Oh, man. I wish you'd shared that with me. I wish you'd follow us on Instagram. <laughs> I do follow us on Instagram. I'm just never on the gram. Uh, okay. Uh, instead of asking him if he would be up for like a no sex marriage, she instead, uh, that night, I never thought to sleep, but a slumber fell on me as soon as I lay down in bed. I was transported in through in thought to the scenes of childhood. I dreamed that I lay in the red room at Gateshead, that the night was dark, and my mind impressed with strange fears. The light that long ago struck me into syncope. Syncope. Any ideas here, Isabel? Sure, I've got a note on it. 319. Struck me into... Syncope. Syncope. Mm -hmm. Which says... A failure of the heart's action resulting in unconsciousness. Oh. Oh, so it's like arterial fibrillation. The light that long ago had struck me into syncope, recalled in this vision, seemed glidingly to mount the wall and tremblingly to pause in the center of the obscured ceiling. I lifted up my head to look. The roof resolved into clouds, high and dim. The gleam was such as the moon imparts to vapors she is about to sever. I watched her come. Watched with the strangest anticipation, as though some world of doom were to be some word of doom were to be written on her disc. She broke forth as never moon yet burst from cloud. A hand first penetrated the sable folds and waved them away. Then, not a moon, but a white human form shone in the azure, inclining a glorious brow earthward. It glazed and gl- it gazed and gazed on me. It spoke to my spirit. Immeasurably distant was the tone yet so near. It whispered in my heart, My daughter, flee temptation. Mother, I will. So I answered after I had walked from the trance-like dream. It was yet night, but July nights are short. Soon after midnight, dawn comes. It cannot be too early to commence the task I have to fulfill, thought I. I rose, I was dressed, for I had taken nothing but my shoes. I knew where to find in my drawers some linen, a a locket, a ring. In seeking these articles, I encountered the beads of of a pearl necklace Mr. Rochester had forced me to accept a few days ago. I left that. It was not mine. It was the visionary brides who had melted in air. The other articles I made up in parcel. My purse containing twenty shillings, it was all I had, I put in my pocket. 
I tied on my straw bonnet, pinned my shawl, took the parcel and my slippers, which I had not put on yet, and stole from my room. Farewell, kind Mrs. Fairfax, I whispered as I glided past her door. Farewell, my darling Adele, I said as I glanced toward the nursery. No thought could be admitted of entering to embrace her. I had to deceive a fine ear, for aught I knew it might now be listening. I would have got past Mr. Rochester's chamber without a pause, but my heart momentarily stopping its beat at that threshold. My foot was forced to stop also. No sleep was there. The inmate was waking restlessly, was walking restlessly from wall to wall, and again and again he sighed while I listened. There was a heaven, a temporary heaven, in this room for me, if I chose. I had but to go in and say, Mr. Rochester, I will love you and live with you through my life till death, and a fount of rapture would spring to my lips. I thought of this. Rap well, maybe, Jane. That kind of master, that kind master, who could not sleep now, was waiting with impatience for day. He would send for me in the morning. I should be gone. He would have sought for vainly. He would have me sought for vainly. He would feel himself forsaken, his love rejected. He would suffer, perhaps grow desperate. I thought of this too. My hand moved toward the lock. I caught it back and glided on. Jeremy, I wound my way downstairs. I knew what I had to do, and I did it mechanically. I sought the key of the side door in the kitchen. I sought, too, a file of oil and a feather. I oiled the key and the lock. I got some water. I got some bread, for perhaps I should have to walk far, and my strength, sorely shaken of late, must not break down. All this I did without one sound as I opened the door, passed out, shut it softly. Dim dawn glimmered in the yard. The great gates were closed and locked, but a wicket in one of them was only latched. Through that I departed it too. I shut, and now I was out of Thornfield. A mile off beyond the fields lay a road which stretched in the contrary direction to Millcott, a road which I had never traveled, but often noticed, and wondered where it led. Thither I bent my steps. No reflection was to be allowed now. Not one glance was to be cast back, not even one forward. No one thought was to be given either to the past or the future. The first was a page, the first was a page so heavenly sweet, so deadly sad, so to read one line, that to read one line of it would dissolve my courage and break my energy. The last was an awful blank, something like the world when the deluge was gone by. I skirted fields and hedges and lanes till after sunrise. I believe it was a lovely summer morning. I know my shoes, which I had put on when I left the house, were soon wet with dew, but I looked neither to rising sun nor smiling sky nor waking nature. He who is taken out of the past through a fair scene to the scaffold thinks not of the flowers that smile on his road, but of the block and the axe edge, of the disseverment of bone and vein, of the grave gaping at the end. And I thought of drear flight what I left. I could not help it. And I thought of drear fight and homeless wandering, and oh, with agony, I thought of what I left. I could not help it. I thought of him now in his room, watching the sunrise, hoping I should soon come to say I would stay with him and be his. I longed to be his. I panted to return. It was not too late. I could yet spare him the bitter pang of bereavement. 
as yet my flight, I was sure, was undiscovered. I could go back and be his comforter, his pride, his redeemer from misery, perhaps from ruin. Oh, that fear of his self-abandonment, far worse than my abandonment, how it goaded me. It was a barbed arrowhead in my breast. It tore me when I tried to extract it. It sickened me when remembrance thrust it further in. Birds began to sing and break in copse. Birds were faithful to their mates. Birds were emblems of love. What was I? In the midst of my pain of heart and frantic effort of principle, I abhorred myself. I had no solace from self-approbation, none even from self-respect. I had injured, wounded, left my master. I was hateful in my own eyes. Still, I could not turn nor retrace one step. God must have led me on. As to my own will or conscience, impassioned grief had trampled one and stifled the other. I was weeping wildly as I walked along my solitary way. Fast, fast I went, like one delirious. A weakness, beginning inwardly, extending to the limbs, seized me, and I fell. I lay on the ground some minutes, pressing my face to the wet turf. I had some fear or hope that here I should die. But I was soon up, crawling forward on my hands and knees, and then again raised to my feet, as eager and as determined as ever to reach the road. When I got there, I was forced to sit to rest me under the hedge, and while I sat, I heard wheels and saw a coach come on. I stood up and lifted my hand. It stopped. I asked where it was going. The driver named a place a long way off, and where I was sure Mr. Rochester had no connections. I asked for what sum he would take me there. He said thirty shillings. I answered I had but twenty. Well, he would try to make it do. He further gave me lead to get in to the inside, as the vehicle was empty. I entered, was shut in, and it rolled on its way. Gentle reader, may you never feel what I then felt. May your eyes never shed such stormy, scalding, heart-wrung tears as poured from mine. May you never appeal to heaven in prayer so hopeless and so agonized as in that hour left my lips. For never may you, like me, dread to be the instrument of evil to what you wholly love. The end, chapter 27. back to that earlier thing that we said where like this book remains so relatable even though it was written in 1843 um because that that leaving that she has you know they they say that when a woman is leaving a domestic violence situation or anyone's leaving it the most dangerous time is the leaving and that you know there's this weird ignorant argument it's like well if you're in danger why don't you just leave and it's like because it's difficult, it's wrenching, it's terrible. You think of how sad and desperate these people are going to be because they have said that they may harm themselves or others in your absence. And that this book so beautifully captures that grief and that agony, even as she walks on, even as we all know that this is the thing that Jane must do, and it is good and right that she do it, 
It's incredible. I think it's also important, like, I think about this book and, like, the cultural context this particular chapter holds, which is, like, it's often lumped in with either the chapter before it or the chapter after it, even though it's so long Mm -hmm. and it's so dense. And -hmm. a lot of that can be attributed to, like, Rochester saying so much while saying nothing at all. But I think it's important that we hear Rochester narrativize his own hero's journey, his own choice to depart his dysfunctional surroundings, right, for this, like, nobler cause, as he puts it, Um, and then to see Jane do the same thing but for a truly noble cause. And I think this contrast is uh, hypercritical of this, like, Byronian hero, Byronic hero, right? It's pointing out that this is actually – Rochester's motivations are actually very selfish mm-hmm. and ill thought through and unearned. Whereas like Jane's motivations, right, what she is going to go on to do, like are are clear-eyed, thoughtful, and for the right reasons, you know. I think that's exactly right. And I think Yeah, like Rochester fails as a Byronic hero because everything that he is trying to ascribe as romantic and at least explainable is pretty terrible. Like every time he's like, I had to do this, it's like you and I are like, well, there were a thousand other things that you could have done. It didn't like there wasn't only one path for you here, guy. And the fact that he is allowed to narrativize it to such an extent. And thank you for doing such an incredible job reading so much text. (laughs) Uh, it is incredible. Like <laughs> I turned one page and it was like literally no paragraph breaks. And I was like, oh my God. But I also think it's really important that in film adaptations, the only part of his speech that's ever kept is the one where he's like, I want your spirit, not your yeah. clay cage. And it's like, it totally, un- like, he's just talking himself exactly. out of murdering her. <laughs> Versus, like, talking about all the ways he's harmed Bertha Mason and Celine Varenne and And, like, in this incredibly self-serving way. And I think, like, maybe he doesn't – I don't think, like, Charlotte thinks that he's failed as a Byronic hero. I think she she sees him as, like, the most successful Byronic hero, and that's the problem with Byron. And people, like – The whole movement, right? And I and I think right. you know one thing Rose Lerner pointed out to us is is this kind of like Christian mingling <laughs> in the book, but like definitely this the this book does have like a higher ethic. It does seem to believe in its own morality above the morality of other texts, and I think that's really clearly laid out in chapter twenty seven. And I feel like we've all been robbed of the true complexity of this story like where it's going to go because adaptations and I think it's really interesting who has done the adaptations right um the the ultimate directors and everything exclude this deeply telling super abusive part of Rochester and like what is that is that the idea that like I think it's I think it does a disservice because I think you read it and you're very much like like you pointed out, like this is a domestic abuse situation, like this is a domestic situation. But by saying like I don't want to and this is just a hypothetical argument with no one who's arguing with me at all, but like I, I wouldn't want to commit this scene 
in my film because I think that it glamorizes domestic abuse, right, or abuser or abusers because he is the Rochester. I think that is a subtle um, dig at people who are in domestic abuse situations, suggesting that it isn't complicated, suggesting that there isn't temptation that is relatable in those situations, right? I think that's such an interesting point because I think even in this argument that we're having with no one, where it's like <laughs> it he is glamorized. And I think there are other scenes mm-hmm. that we've seen him be abusive, like clearly Bertha yeah. Mason. That's yeah. abuse writ large. But in this scene, I think you're so right because Jane uses the word temptation, like don't be tempted, like because it is. Mm-hmm. There's like the siren's call that Rochester is eliciting here on all of her senses. Like he starts at the beginning of their relationship. He's like, I saw the bird on the road to Millcut and she said that I would be aided and I was. And she's like, don't talk about the beginning because like this is where we're at. And like that's painful to me. And mm-hmm. There's so much there that's, like, tempting. And even in the end when she's, like, collected her, like, few belongings and her 20 shillings and she can hear him pacing on the other side of the door waiting for daybreak and she has the full, fully realized thought that if I go in there now and I say, I love you and I'll live with you, rapture would be mine. And we can understand that in all of its contexts of both physical and sensual and whatever. But I think that there's something here about this idea that, like... Laws and rules are not meant for situations when things are easy and that, like, right. they're, they're for moments of temptation. And it's like, I don't necessarily yeah. agree with whatever the Victorian rules are here, but the fact that she holds them so close and when she says, mm-hmm. you know, when I am friendless and, you know, without recourse, like, I will respect myself all the more. I was like, yeah. ugh. When people talk about how Jane Eyre is a like proto-feminist text or the first feminist text, people say it's like yeah. they always talk about her first one at the parapet when she's like, "Do not women have a heart as strong as men?" Ugh. And I'm like, yeah. really? Because it's this one when she yeah, says, "I'm friendless it, and mean. I will respect myself all the more." Ugh. I feel like it's so critical that like, yeah, now is the point at which she's making the hard choice, and she's making the hard choice. I mean, we can, like, even, like, shrug off, I think, the particulars of, like, her whys and know that she is merely, like, we can denude it of all of its, like, Victorian principle, right, and say she is siding with her own will. Yes. And I think rather than submitting to the will of someone else. Yes. I place my foot. I think this chapter, I think chapter 27 might be the most underrated chapter in Jane Eyre. I don't know. Definitely not the kinkiest, though. For sure not the kinkiest. Definitely not the kinkiest. All right. Anything else? No, that was great. Thank you so much for doing so much. (laughs) This was a long one. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, To me, read that much. That's crazy. But I hope you broke it up into small chunks. Um, perhaps you listen to it at a slower rate, if only to dampen my, my pitchy tones. And you got through it. We got through it together. Isabeau genuinely enjoyed it. She looked a little bit like a puppy getting her ear scratched at certain points, which was nice. It's true. I love being red, too. With that, loosen your James. But, but never your airs. Mwah. Mwah.